Australia faces the great challenge of climate change. If we keep going the way we are going, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, has warned the Earth is likely to see a 1.5 degree Celsius increase in temperature by 2030, resulting in increased catastrophic weather events such as drought, fire and flood. These warnings call for urgent change. In 2020, the industrial sector was responsible for 31% of Australia's emissions, and all our emissions in this sector have only increased over the past 15 years. But how do we reduce carbon emissions in the industrial sector while maintaining jobs and the economy? With me today to discuss the second in their report series Towards Net Zero, Practical Policies to Reduce Industrial Emissions, are the Program Director and Deputy Program Director from Grattan's Energy and Climate Change Program, Tony Wood and Alison Reeve. So just to set the scene, Alison, what does it mean when we talk about the industrial sector? So the industrial sector covers a really wide variety of activities. So um, it includes mining, LNG production, making cement, making fertiliser, manufacturing other things, making steel, processing minerals and so on. This variety means that there's a lot of different activities that create emissions. There's more than 50 in Australia, but roughly we can sort of group them into three main groups to help us think through sort of what the, the problem is and what the solutions might be. So the first group is, um, is fossil fuel extraction. Most people think about the emissions that are created when we burn fossil fuels, but there's also emissions that are created when we mine for them. So in this sector, we're talking about things like LNG and other gas extraction, also oil and also coal mining. The second group um, we call mining and metals in our report, and this covers both mining for ores. So that might be gold, it might be iron ore, it might be zinc or silver, but also processing those ores and turning them into metals or other mineral products. And then there's a third group, which is manufacturing. Now this covers lots and lots of different things, but the two big uh, contributors to emissions in, in manufacturing are making cement and making ammonia and fertilisers. The sector that has the biggest impact on emissions, it's about half of the industrial emissions in 2019 or 187 million tonnes, um, are the fossil fuel extraction sector. Those emissions as well have grown by more than 50% since 2005. So they are a really big contributor to a big contributor to our emissions. So Alison, that is a lot of industries. How do we even start thinking about reducing emissions across so many different industries? Well, I think I might come in there. I think the first thing you've got to do is decide you've got to do something about it. Um, and at the moment, in the industrial sector, there's been very little attention given to reducing emissions here because so much of the focus has been on the electricity sector or the electricity generation sector which does produce um, the biggest percentage of our emissions, over a third. Um, but as Alison described, there's a, a lot of emissions coming from the industrial sector. So starting is a good idea. Um, the second thing is to think about this in, in, in one important way, and that is to sort of separate the small number of very big emitters, and Alison referred to those, and then the big number of very small emitters. And the sort of mechanisms that would be useful to help them reduce their emissions are almost certainly quite different. Now, 
We're talking in the absence of a national climate change policy. What is, and this is what our whole series is about, Kat, as you said at the beginning, what are the things we could do now in a practical sense that will get us moving in the right direction? And at that practical level, the issues become very specific. The big, comp- the big industries and the big companies, the many small industries and the smaller companies in that sector. I like that statement that we should decide to do something. I think it's important that, you know, it might seem overwhelming, the large amount of industries and things to tackle, but um, the most important thing is to decide to make that change. What should governments do here? I mean, Tony, what are some of the policies that reduce emissions from these big emitters? Well, Kat, I think the answer here is to begin with what we've got, because inventing new carbon policies is something Australia is very bad at. And we've certainly tried a lot. We've thrown many of them away. We have a policy that was invented by the then energy minister back in 2010, um, or he was about to become the energy minister at the next election, Greg Hunt, and it became legislation not long after. Um, This had two major pieces to it. One was something called the Emissions Reduction Fund. It's now called the Climate Solutions Fund. And that was funded directly by government. And the idea was to pay emitters or polluters, whichever way you want to call them, um, to reduce their emissions directly from the budget. The second one is if you're going to spend all that money, it'd be a good idea to try and make sure that at the same time you're spending that money, other people aren't doing exactly the opposite and pulling in the opposite direction. So the government introduced something called the safeguard mechanism. And the idea was to set baseline emissions levels for some of these big companies, particularly very big companies with big levels of emissions, particularly over 100,000 tonnes a year, and say to them, look, Based upon some measure, your historical baseline, your industry baseline, and there are a whole different ways of doing this, and it's evolved over the intervening years, we'll set you a baseline. And the idea was that we'll try and cap emissions at that level. You won't be forced to go below that, but you also will be penalised if you go above it. And that was the idea, and that was the idea that was introduced back in 2014, and it's been been there ever since. And has this worked so far? Not really. There's a a couple of design features that mean that Safeguard hasn't actually put downward pressure on emissions. First of all, the baselines that facilities need to comply with were set using historic high points, and that meant that there was plenty of headroom underneath the baseline for industrial facilities to actually increase their emissions without getting penalised. The other feature is that In the very rare case where a facility has gone above its baseline, it doesn't face a penalty. It can just apply for a different, higher baseline and hey presto, it's back in compliance again. So what that means is that even though those baselines are there under the safeguard mechanism and are meant to stop emissions from growing beyond what the government is paying people to abate in in other parts of the economy, emissions in the industrial sector have just kept growing. So, Tony, is it possible to actually make this work better for us? Well, Kat, it is because in some ways that was the original intent. Many people were expecting that at some point the government, whoever it was at the time, would tighten the baselines. That is, the baselines would be steadily reduced, consistent with whatever objective we've determined we should have overall to reduce emissions, and companies would then be forced effectively to reduce their emissions in line with those reducing baselines or face financial penalties. Now, that never happened, mainly because the politic- politics of the climate war got in the way. And so this thing's been set as more or less left sitting on the shelf, not doing very much, and certainly not becoming a binding constraint in the way that Alison was talking about. But there are things we can do that don't 
initially require penalties, but do give companies incentives. And one of them emerged partly from a recent review called the King Review, which was done by the government in terms of looking for ways ways of making these systems work better, the um, Climate Solutions Fund and the Safeguard Mechanism. And they recommended that one thing you could do was give companies credit for going below the baseline. Now, again, if you're going to give companies credit, how do you do that? Well, you pay them. And so the government has allocated a relatively small amount of money uh, to this activity of uh, giving companies credit where they go below their baseline. That would be a start. At the same time, you could then think about what else could you do to reduce the baselines to ensure that over time this happens. But a good way to do it is our idea in this report would be to say, look, in any individual sector, there are some companies who actually could make changes and there are some for whom it would be quite difficult. So why don't we give credit for those who can? That would mean that the average of that sector, average emissions would come down. And if you calculated everybody's baseline on that reducing average, over time, that would gradually give companies the incentive to do more. And over time, that would also then reduce. Now, it would mean progressively more money coming from the government, and eventually it might have to change the way it worked. But that would be the principle, and we think that would be a very good way to start and get us on track to creating momentum towards the long-term target of net zero by 2050. Alison, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, what, what Tony describes there is a sort of a first step to get people thinking about moving their emissions down. The next step that we think governments should take after that would be to link those baselines to actually achieving a share of of our national target. So at the moment, the baselines reflect kind of where we are rather than where we want to be. So if we start to decline the baselines over time, that would increase pressure for facilities to improve their performance or to start using offsets. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to suddenly, you know, drop the baseline straight down to zero immediately. It would be on a trajectory. But if we are trying to, as a nation, move on a trajectory towards net zero, then everyone has to sort of have a trajectory that takes them towards zero. And that will be a mix of doing activities and using offsets. So linking the baselines to that national trajectory would be the sort of logical next step. The other thing we think that governments could do is create a meaningful penalty. So as I said before, facilities can use administrative procedures to avoid paying penalties when they breach their baselines. And we've recommended that this provision should be removed. So you said before that different solutions should be applied to different industries, and that makes sense. Does this mean that the safeguard isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for the sector? That's right. So when Tony said earlier that there's, you know, tens of thousands of um, companies and, and facilities operating in the industrial sector, 187 of them are responsible for 80% of the emissions. And those are the people who get caught under the safeguard. The remaining 9,000 and something facilities are responsible for 20% of industrial emissions. So what that means is the individual amount they're responsible for is really small. But if we want to get to net zero, all of those small amounts actually add up to 
you know, a serious amount of emissions and something that we should think about addressing. Because there's so many of them, we need a different approach. And we think there are some policies in place in some of the states that could be expanded to help these businesses reduce emissions and save money while they do it. State governments are often much better placed than the federal government to implement policies that have to um, reach lots and lots of people because state governments are literally closer to those people. It's very, very hard to do a policy that touches every small business in the country from Canberra. It's much easier to do that from Sydney or from Brisbane or from Melbourne. So it leads me to ask about the energy efficiency obligation. What What is this and how can it help reduce emissions? Yes, I, I should have said actually that what the, the policy that we're thinking about in the States um, are policies which are called energy efficiency obligations. So the first thing to understand here is how energy efficiency and emissions are related. So a lot of our emissions come from using energy. And if you use that energy more efficiently, then you also reduce emissions and you also save money on your energy bills at the same time. It's a bit of a win-win. What an energy efficiency obligation does is it requires your energy retailer to help you do this. So the way that energy efficiency obligations work is that the state governments who have these schemes have set up a list of activities that save energy and they've nominated how much energy is saved by each of those activities. And for each of those units of energy saved, they issue a certificate. Now, to prove that they've met the obligation, the energy retailer has to buy and surrender certificates equal to their target. The reason that these schemes make a difference is that a lot of activities that save energy only save small amounts. So changing over, you know, one light bulb at home or one boiler in a small food company doesn't really make much difference to our national energy consumption and our national emissions. And it might make only a small difference for one food company to change over one boiler. And that means it's very easy for them to put off doing it, right? But when you've got thousands of food companies and you change over all of the boilers, it makes a big difference, it, both to energy consumption and also to emissions. Now, if you specialise in changing over boilers in exchange for certificates that the state government is happy to give you, then what happens? Well, the food companies get new boilers and save money. If you're a boiler installer, you can sell the certificates to the energy retailer and the energy retailer is happy because they've met their target. And what tends to happen here is that the activities that are the cheapest and easiest to do at scale, so that are repeatable, like replacing every boiler at every food company, will be the activities that get picked up. And that way, that way you actually make sure that you're picking up the activities that save the most amount of energy for the least amount of money first. And that means you're getting the most amount of emissions reduction for the least amount of money. So Alison, I mean, I can imagine small businesses are very keen to save money where they can. And if they can do that saving energy emissions at the same time, it's a win-win. Does this combination of policies for small and large businesses solve everything? Well, this combination will I think put us on the right path and it will set things up to start moving towards net zero. We didn't set out to write a full plan for the whole sector for every year between now and 2050. What we wanted to do was to say, well, here are some things that you can do now that move us onto the pathway. Um, and, you know, we, we know we're going to need more policies later on, but let's get started with the things that are possible now. 
the other thing I think to remember in the industrial sector too is that there are some activities that just aren't really compatible with a net zero world. And one of those might be coal mining and another one is possibly LNG. Most of our coal and all of our LNG are exported. Our biggest customer for both of these is Japan. And Japan has made some really ambitious goals to reduce its emissions. It's planning to cut coal use from 32% to 19% of its energy mix by 2030, um, and LNG from 37% in to 20% by 2030. What that means is our market for commodities like coal and LNG is potentially going to shrink. That will have an impact on our emissions here, but it also means that we do need to think very hard about how we manage the emissions from the remaining parts of those sectors because they are going to be competing in a declining market. And that leads us into some of the hard questions around this um, transformation. The Australian economy relies heavily on both of these industries, right, Tony? Absolutely right, Kat. Of the three biggest export revenue earners that we have, iron ore is number one, but coal and liquefied natural gas are number two and three. Uh, both of them of the order of 40 to $50 billion a year. And these are very significant. And in addition to that, they employ a lot of people, particularly in some specific regional areas of Australia. And so not surprisingly, people get concerned about that. And if Australia was a business and we saw our customers walking away from our business in the future, we'd be doing something about it. And we should. And so I think one of the big challenges here is how do we both accept, recognise, work with our uh, customers in terms of helping them meet their objectives in terms of reducing emissions. And there are ways we can do that. At the same time as we adjust our internal economy to reflect those changes. It's not a trivial process, but it's absolutely essential because as Alison said, some of these things, are the decisions are out of our hands. So Alison, will the economy take a hit here? It's hard to say, Kat. The, the point I think that Tony's making is we've got choices about how we change our economy to respond to net zero. So we know that some of our biggest fossil fuel markets are potentially going to shrink. We know that our producers will be complete competing in declining markets. The other thing that we know, though, is that there's also opportunities coming from the energy transition and that we should grab them. So one thing that's quite interesting and that um, is in our report in Chapter 2 is some forecasts from the IEA about how the market for critical minerals, so things like lithium and cobalt and copper and so on, that are really important for the energy transition, is going to absolutely take off in a world where countries are all committed to net zero. Now, Australia's got lots of those minerals. Um, we also, as Tony said, iron ore is the, the biggest contributor that we've got to exports at the moment. And the energy transition needs a lot of steel. So there's also an opportunity here that we could take so that the economy doesn't take a hit. And Tony, it brings to mind your report from last year on green steel uh, and creating jobs in heavy industries. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, what we found, when we thought deeply about the consequences of these industries moving away from us and taking the jobs with them, was that there are possibilities that could take their place. The biggest fundamental reason for this is that Australia almost certainly will have a comparative advantage in a low emissions world. And that arises because we've got a very large country with a relatively small population. We have a lot of sunshine and quite a lot of wind. 
And if we can harness those, and not just to harness the energy, but use that low-cost energy in terms of low-emission manufacturing, then we could be a seriously important energy superpower, as Ross Garnett calls it, in this future world. And so what we identified in that Start With Steel report was that in that specific area, an area that's responsible globally for something like 7% of the world's emissions, Australia actually could emerge as a major supplier of green steel in the same way today that Australia is a major supplier of iron ore, as we've already mentioned, and also a major supplier of coal. The two of them, we could replace the coal with um, renewable energy and hydrogen, process our iron ore in Australia, and that potentially could replace not only the income revenue that we get from these resources, but also replace the jobs. And the jobs would be just as interesting and probably uh, almost as well paid as those 50-odd thousand jobs that currently exist in those carbon-intensive industries in regional Australia. So that's why we think the opportunities in, in that area are important and the opportunities in those other areas that Alison also mentioned are potentially equally important. Um, it's not straightforward, but the opportunity is there for us to take. So, Alison, these are a lot of changes for industry. I mean, when do we need to start making them and how fast would this transformation take place? It's really fast, Kat, and we actually do need to start now. 30 years between now and 2050 sounds like a really long time, but when you're talking about industrial facilities, it's pretty much just one life cycle for them. So that means every facility that we already have is only going to have one chance between now and 2050 to make the decisions that lock in its future emissions. The facility that you start operating today is still going to be there in 2050. And so that pace of change is actually going to be something that's quite unprecedented and a lot faster than pretty much we've ever seen in industrial development in Australia before. It's really important that future emissions get taken into account when we when we build those new facilities. So if you want to build a new cement plant in 2025 that's going to last for 40 years, you want it to be the lowest possible emissions cement plant because once it's operating, you're stuck with those emissions until that plant closes down at the end of its life. One of the recommendations we've made in the report is that the safeguard mechanism should put stringent baselines onto new facilities to help prevent this problem. Now, that might mean that new facilities cost more to build, but we have to weigh that up against meeting the net zero goal in 2050 and also the cost of continuing to offset emissions for a long time afterwards. Well, I guess, Kat, this is what we know happens in these processes is that often the new costs more than the old, but usually the new is better than the old. And so once we get started, we also find that the costs come down rapidly because industries work out how to drive the cost down rapidly. The challenge is in the early stages, where there are significant technical risks, considerable uh, market risks, and possibly even policy risks. And this is where the role of government can come in because a strong industrial partnership between the government and these industries could provide a basis in which those risks could be minimised and much better shared. And so I think that's why it's so important that this is not just left to industry, but government and industry work together to really get moving on these changes. What are the things that government can do right now to make this change happen? Well, there are two big things, and we've referred to them, and I'll re-emphasise them, Kat. One is we can make the existing safeguard mechanism, which is a national policy, work better to start giving people and companies the incentive to reduce their emissions, and that will become a self-reinforcing process. At the same time, we could also 
at the state level, use those energy efficiency schemes that Alison referred to um, to help those companies reduce their improve their efficiency and reduce their emissions in the process. Now, neither of those involves what is for both sides of politics at a federal level carbon taxing. Basically, they are using incentives to give companies the um, the the incentive to do what's absolutely necessary now and get us on the pathway to reducing emissions in the longer term. The other thing, um, Kat, is that we think governments need to set up a future fund of some sort now so that they can do that risk sharing and that cooperation with the private sector in the future and those upcoming asset decisions don't lock in emissions. Every decision from now on really, really matters in terms of hitting net zero and for limiting the worst of climate change, like you said at the beginning, and also for positioning the economy to thrive in a net zero world, for grabbing those opportunities around critical minerals or around green steel and so on. Thank you so much, Alison and Tony. Um, It's great to have you on the podcast to discuss this important topic, and we look forward to having you again on the podcast to discuss your further reports on how we can reach net zero. I'd also like to thank the Susan McKinnon Foundation for its generous and timely support for this project. We'd love to keep talking with you about the issues raised in today's podcast, and you can chat with us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and social media at Grattan Institute. Likewise, if you'd like to read the content of the report and find out more about their research, it's available for free online at grattan.edu.au. Like I always say, especially if you're in lockdown, take care. And thanks so much for listening.